Well, good morning to everybody here, and it's good to see you all. Um, this is, if you, I don't know if I see any visitors. I really don't know a lot of people that are here. Um, I'm not the usual speaker, so if you're visiting today, I would, as we like to do, we always encourage you to come back more than once, and, and uh, I'm, I'm, my name's Stephen Green. I should probably start there. Uh, my wife and I are in St. Louis, and we're here for a few weeks, and uh, if you are visiting, come back next week. Mike or Kent or one of the elders will be teaching. They're the, they're the authoritative teachers of this church, and um, I want to thank you all for allowing me to speak. Um, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Um, that's where I'm going to be parked today, and I want to talk today specifically about devotion, specifically in that, fostering devotions for God the Father. Um, and I think Deuteronomy has a lot to say about that. And if you remember last week, I, 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 beginning, I, I said it's really important if we want to read our Bibles faithfully, um, and as a student of the Bible, we should try to understand the context for which the Scriptures are being written. And so in Deuteronomy, there's a context, there's a reason why Moses is writing to uh, the, the Israelites. And um, one thing that I think is helpful to think about for you all here and the importance of context and, and, and understanding it when you study the Bible is, is Shakespeare. Um, and what I mean by it is this, is I remember uh, reading Shakespeare as a freshman at Topeka High, and what we would do is we would read Romeo and Juliet, we'd read a few verses or stanzas from Romeo and Juliet's play, and then the teacher would sit there and basically interpret what was being said, right? Because if you remember Ro- Sh- Romeo and Juliet and Shakespearean plays, is that there's, there's language there that's confusing. And the one that always was funny to me is when they're having that conflict. I don't remember exactly where. I'm sorry, I should have gotten that down. But uh, one of the guys says, do you bite thy thumb at thee? And it's basically, the context is it's an insult. And see, we have to, part of being a good student of Shakespeare is understanding the language and the context so that when we read uh, Shakespeare, we can understand when something humorous is being said, we can laugh with them, or we can understand when somebody's angry and, and understand that context. And that's kind of like Scripture. See, Scripture was lit, written over thousands of years in, in an area that we're ourselves not familiar with. Most of us haven't visited that area, and so there's a context that we need to consider when reading our Bibles. Um, and, and just something that might be helpful for you all, if you're new to, to Christianity or, or a growing Christian and want to know more about how can I understand context and, you know, who wrote the books and whatnot, I would encourage you just to pick up a good study Bible. Um, I have mine, uh, Grace gave me as a present. It's an ESV study Bible. There's lots of good Bibles out there. Um, but just as a, a small exhortation before we begin, um, ask yourself as you read books of the Bible, you know, who is the author? Why is he writing? What's the purpose and occasion? And, and what are some of the kind of the values and beliefs of the people that he's writing to so we can understand context better? And that being said, Deuteronomy, is, like I said last week, is part of the Pentateuch. It's one of the first five books of the Bible. Um, one thing that we need to know up front is this, is that it's written to the second generation Exodus community. What does that mean? It means that the Israelites were for a time in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and Moses, and through God's leadership, had moved Moses and the people of God into the wilderness and they were going to enter the land that he was going to show them, what is con- con- considered then Canaan and now Israel. 
And, and, and it's being written to the second generation Exodus community because if you read the Pentateuch, we find out that the first generation was disobedient. They were unfaithful to God and their punishment was that they wouldn't get to enter the land of promise. And so now this, this community, the second generation community is, is getting prepared or being prepared to enter the land and the context of Deuteronomy is this, is that Moses is trying to encourage the Israelites to remain faithful to the covenant that he, that he has created with them and the law that he has given them. And so in Deuteronomy specifically, like we were talking about last week, there's this constant recounting of all the amazing events that God has done in Israel's life to kind of build credibility to say remain faithful to God's covenant. So that's the context um, in which we're in. And I'm going to read the verse uh, or the verses that we're looking at, verses 4 through 12, um, and then I'll pray, and um, we'll go from there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall, te- you shall teach them diligently to excuse me, your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you again for this day. Um, We thank you for, Lord, it's it's been a hot, dry week, and it feels oppressive. And Lord, I can't help but think about your conversation with the woman at the well that Jesus had with the woman at the well and said, I have water that will never make you thirst again. And that water is the gospel. That is Christ Jesus himself. And so, Father, I pray that through your power and your wisdom, Lord, that we would spend time as a community drinking from the well of the gospel of life and that we would have hearts that would be obedient to your word and that we would submit to what you'd be telling us today, Father. Lord, we thank you for life, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has given us life. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question. Where were you when Mario Chalmers hit the shot? There's some chuckles because you know immediately what I'm talking about, right? Where were you when Mario Chalmers hit the shot? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably not a KU basketball fan, but in 2008, um, the national championship game, KU versus Memphis, with only seconds left, Mario Chalmers hit a game-tying three-pointer to send the game into overtime and to win the national championship against the Memphis Tigers. And I remember specifically where I was when the shot was made. I was actually in Grace's car, I was taking her back to her place, and I was listening to it on the radio. Now, some people were with, with friends, and, 
and, and at parties and whatnot. And those that you know that, that know me and know that I'm a KU basketball fan, you have to be wondering, Stephen, what in the world were you doing in a car during the national championship game? It's a great question. Well, I think the an- and I, in answering that question, it really shows you, A, how pathetic of a fan I am, and B, how, what I think, how devoted, unfortunately, I am to KU basketball. See, I, I love KU basketball. I'm a huge fan. I keep up with recruiting. Uh, Jared and I, we love talking KU basketball together. Uh, I keep up bracketology, all, all that. So I'm a huge KU basketball fan. And that year especially, I was really captivated by some of the players. I'm going to sound pathetic when I, when I tell you the story up front. But I was captivated by some of the storylines of the players, like Darnell Jackson, just some of the trials and personal struggles that he had overcome, and Sasha Khan coming all the way from Russia, and his dad being uh, murdered, and just the, his, his triumph that he'd had. And I really wanted them to win. And if you remember that game, with only a few minutes left in, in regulation, KU was down big. And I was, I was coming, I was, I was so sad. And the point, we were with a big group of people. I, I almost was worried. I was, I was worried that I was going to cry, and I was too embarrassed to, to have tears in front of people. I said, Grace, let's just get out of here. Let's get out. It's over. I don't want people to see me like this. I know, it's sad. And so there we were, going back. She lived in Stowell, Kansas at that time. We were on this lonely country road heading back to Stowell, Kansas, when the radio announcer said that Mario Chalmers had hit the shot to tie the game. And, and, I, and, and I tell you that story because I want to kind of show you my devotion towards KU basketball. It's something I'm devoted to, and, and we all have devotions to something. Some of us were devoted to family, or our jobs, or our hobbies and leisure, which are all great things. Um, for instance, some of us here, or some of you here, are devoted to Haiti Lifeline Ministries. Devotion isn't necessarily a bad thing. Devotion is is, is in essence, a profound dedication to a cause or object. So being devoted to Haiti Lifeline is a good thing. And just like we prayed for, uh, you know, Christ, our care net, the, the, the crisis pregnancy center, it's good to be devoted to certain causes, like the rights of an unborn child. That's a good thing. Devotion isn't necessarily bad. The problem with devotion is this, is that sometimes that we know that God has created us, created in us a desire to be devoted to him, we know that if we reflect on our hearts that that isn't necessarily how we always act. That if we start thinking about our lives and what we really enjoy and what we really um, find satisfaction in, is, is sometimes it's not Christ. It's other things. It's, it's maybe, you know, instead of Christ, it's the career or money or, or whatever. And when there's a, in, in Deuteronomy, as we read, there's a careful warning that Moses is telling the Israelites as they're preparing to enter the land, and it's this, is that, you know, they're going into a land that's already been worked. It's already been cultivated. They don't have to do anything. They're going into a land that is filled with resources, and there's this real temptation to be content, to be fat and happy, and to be spiritually lazy. And what Moses is saying is that I, that God needs your devotion, your complete and absolute devotion to me. In essence, we see in this chapter, in, in, in these verses, is this is because God is devoted to his people, we must be devoted to him. And I've, I've given you a study sheet um, with some reflection questions. I hope they're helpful. Honestly, if they're not, let me know, because I, I don't want to be just handing out these, these sheets and, and not really hitting the mark with you all. So if a couple people, in honesty, would tell me what they think, that would be appreciative. But there's three points that I want to focus in on today that I think these, this, this section is talking about. And it's this, is that first we need to, or we must love the Lord. Second, 
we must confess the Lord, and third, we must remember the Lord. And um, real quick, I need to give credit to the commentator that I use, or commentary that I use for this, uh, Raymond Brown. He really helped me develop some of these, these points. So that being said, uh, the first one I want to look at in verse 4 is this idea of loving the Lord. I'm going to read it out loud and then make some observations and some application from there. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, if, if you know anything about Judaism, uh, this, this, this phrase, this, this verse specifically is, is known as the Shema. And the Shema is, is a, a Hebraic word for hear. And, and the Shema is typically, especially in Orthodox Jewish homes, practiced or recited during the morning and evening devotion. This is kind of the centerpiece of, of Jewish worship. And it's this, Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus makes a similar reference to that in the Gospels. But we have to ask ourselves, what, what does this mean? Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. The first is this, is that God is one. And now, saying that in a context, remember, context is helpful, saying that in the context of polytheism is, is, is huge. Essentially what they're saying is, I know, or Moses or God is saying, I know that there's all these other fal- false idols out there, but what you need to know is that they're, they're lies, that I am the only thing that exists, that I am God, I am the one true God. It is me. And moving on from that, he, he, he kind of builds this momentum with how we're supposed to respond to that is this, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the type of love you're, love you're supposed to have. For those of you who are married, what I think God is, is doing is this, is that he's, he's building this sort, of, uh, this sort of kind of emotional pull so that the heart is represented in Jewish culture as the mind and then the soul is, is kind of the intellect and the being. And so he's saying with every part of your being, every faculty that you have, you are to love God. Why? Why are we to love God? I don't, and this is, I meant to apologize to this earlier. I don't want to preach from Deuteronomy and just lift, lift, or, uh, list off a bunch of commands in which we're supposed to do. I think the Bible's full of indicatives, meaning we do these things because of this. And the reason why we are to love God with all our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength is because he first loved us. For those of you that are married here, um, do you remember when you first knew that you loved your spouse? I know I do, and, and we always joke, it, it came on a little too soon. Uh, I, knew I, loved, I, I knew I loved Grace really early on, and, um, but it wasn't like the first date. And some people, it's like the first date, you know you love that person. I, I hear about those stories, and I know that's true. But for most of us, the experience of love, and even with friends and with family, isn't a sudden moment. It's a slow-cooked sort of feeling of which we engage and listen to their stories and we interact with them and we spend time in community with them and in fellowship with them so that over time we have this greater understanding that I love that person. There are people here, I mean, I love people here and it's because I've had the chance to hear their stories, that I've interacted with them, that I've, that I've been a part of their lives. And so if we're going to have this kind of cultivation of love towards God, the, the concept that I think that's being drawn out here is that God is relational, and so we're to love a relational God. And um, I, I want to spend a second kind of 
proving that, that God is, is relational, if you don't believe me, that if you think of him as sort of abstract pos, uh, propositions as kind of an, um, an unrelational being. Um, looking at verse 4, and I have to admit that the, this... The, the way that I'm delivering this message today is a little different, but looking at verse 4, um, look at that word Lord. You, most of you have that in your Bible. It's in all capitals, um, and it's, it's Lord. Now, there's something that's going on there. If you don't know what's, what, it, what it is, is that the Lord actually is, is, a, is replacing another word, which is Yahweh. Um, and, and that happened uh, in this, in, in, in a few thousand years ago when they started doing that. The Jewish scholars started doing that. But we see that everywhere, especially in the Pentateuch and in the Psalms that we see Lord. And every time you see Lord, just think in your head, Yahweh. So what is, what's the significance of Yahweh? Well, Yahweh, we find out, is God's personal name that he has given to Israel. That it's, it's, his, it's his name. And he's doing so for the sake of building this covenant relationship with his children, with his people. And so he's saying, this is the name in which you are to call me by, which is Yahweh. And so when we see Lord, we can think in our heads, Yahweh, which is Yahweh, that that is the name of a very personal name, because God is personal. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with people. And so we understand God through his revelation and revealing himself to his people that we are to love him because he's relational. And, and, and as I said earlier, why do we love God? Why should we love God with all of our being, with all of our might, with all of our strength? Because he first loved us. If you read on in Deuteronomy 7, we find out the basis, I, I believe, person, my conviction, is why Israel was elected. And I'm not going to read it, and if you have a chance to go, you can read there yourself. Um, it's because, and I, I will read it. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you're more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God didn't choose Israel because they were powerful, because they were strong. It was because simply God delights and loves his children. In God's goodwill, he chose Israel. And we read in the New Testament why the church is elected, why people are elected into the church, and we find not because of anything that we've done, but because God simply loves and delights in his children. Now, I'm going to ask a really kind of softballish question, but do you really believe God loves you? Uh, we, we sing that song as, as children, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it, it's, a, it's, it's a great song, and it's very tender, but I, I want to I get to something here, and it's that some of us don't really believe in our hearts and everything that we have, that God really loves us. And, and part of that, and just laying, kind of getting to those roots of why that might be the case, even though that Scripture affirms that, that God loves you is this, is that we've been in relationships where love is conditional. We've had parents that love us only if we're obedient. We have spouses that love us only if we do the right things. And we love, or we have uh, relationships in which love is based on performance. And so when we, we get to this idea that God loves us, we say, well, I have to earn my love or God's love for me. And the Bible says, no, that's not it. I don't love you because of that. And, and we actually find, and Mike talked about this a few weeks back, about the basis of God's love. It's because as Christians, if you know Christ, it's because of Christ's death and resurrection. It's through his salvific work on the cross that God is able to love us unconditionally. So when I say that God loves you, I can say with absolute authority and conviction that God, if you know Christ, loves you, that he 
just simply delights in you. So believe in your hearts that God truly does light, love you and free yourself from bashing, um, and, and bashing yourself and, and moving away from this sort of, I have to earn my salvation. I have to earn God's love. And then uh, last point to this is, is in loving God and in a loving relationship, we spend time with each other. We enjoy each other's company. And for you all here today, I would just encourage you to just spend time enjoying God. You know, we all have our leisure activities. Some of us like to run or cook or sew or work on cars or whatever. But I, this sounds completely, maybe, you know, whatever, but just love those activities and do it all for God's glory. John Piper makes a really good statement that he says that God is most truly sat or glorified when we are most satisfied in him, and I can't agree more with that. So I would just encourage you, no matter what activity or task that you're in today or tomorrow or whenever, to just spend some time just reveling in whatever activity that God has and saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, Father, for allowing me to fish or allowing me to have a meal with my family. Lord, let me, let me just enjoy this with you. I think that's what's kind of setting the seeds for devotion and love in God with all of our being. Moving on to uh, the second point, it's, it's this, is that we must confess the Lord. If we're going to foster a devotion for God, then we must confess him. Move, um, we see this kind of moving on through the verses. In, in verses 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, we, in, in St. Louis, we live near a, an Orthodox Jewish community, and on Saturdays, if we're out and about, we'll actually see them walking to the synagogue. And the men, they have these large hats on their heads, and they actually have a, a piece of Scripture, a box, that has a piece of Scripture contained in it, and they actually have pieces of Scripture um, kind of banded on both of their arms. They actually they take this literally, that this is what they're supposed to do, that they're literally supposed to bind God's words to their body. And if you see in some Jewish homes, and, and we have a, a, a Jewish uh, family friend in Lawrence, that when you walk into their house, you'll see a little box posted to their door. And inside of that box, it has a piece of scripture, usually the Shema, the, 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 the verse that I just read before that, Deuteronomy 4. But, I don't, but it has various scriptures, and they take this literally, that this is what they're supposed to do. And commentators say, you know, I don't know if it's a, we don't know if it's a principle or if it's a literal interpretation of what we're supposed to do, but there's this, this sense here that, that, that we're supposed to, in every way that we can, confess God. See, we have our, what Moses is saying is, is have it on your heads so that it, it, it's internalized. Confess it to your family. Teach the word to your family and then put it on your doorposts. So you have this personal, knowing the word, within your family, in the context of family knowing the word, and then a, a passage written over the door, door frame so that the, con- the community would know the word, that, you, that they would know where you stand. And I'm going to gripe. I usually don't get very political. And I've seen this on both the conservative and liberal sides of politics. It's this, that it is completely inappropriate and completely wrong to think that a politician or that a person can somehow segment their faith from their convictions. So we live in this, this time where people say, don't bring your religion into politics. Don't vote because of the convictions of your religion. You have to separate those two things. And I've had friends that say, you know, I have a very private faith. Don't you tell me about your faith and, and I'm not the one that's going to tell you about my faith because what I have is a very private thing. And I think Moses is saying, no, that's not it. God is saying, no, that's not it. 
Faith in God is, is a public, communal activity. And we are to do that in all areas of our lives. We can't segment those two. We can't live in sort of a, a, and in this dichotomy of, of our own personal lives and in our daily activities. It's that confessing God is all-encompassing. Uh, thinking about application in this, in this sense that we're supposed to confess God in our homes and in our communities, there's two thoughts that I want to have. First, and this is very practical, this is a great section for uh, uh, kind of promoting family devotion, family worship as a family. Um, Grace and I have been reading a book uh, called, uh, and I, can't you actually turn me on to this author, uh, Disciplines of a Godly Family, and it's a great book. And if you, if you don't know what family worship looks like, uh, that fostering family devotion looks like, I'd really encourage you to get this book. And he kind of helps me, has helped me understand what family worship looks like. And I want to exhort you to practice the lost art, the ever so dying art of family worship. And um, I, I really understood the need and the importance of this. Actually, 10 years ago, when I was interning um, at a church doing youth ministry, and, and, and I think it puts the finger on kind of an epidemic that's going on right now, and in, in, in especially in American church, and it's this. I would have people often coming up to me and saying, you know, uh, Steve, if you, could just have, if you could just spend some time talking to my son, Timmy, um, you know, I just really appreciate that. If you could just, you know, talk to him about God or, you know, talk to him about some things that's going on in his life, you know, we would really appreciate that. And, you know, at, at one hand, you know, I was thinking, that's great. I love to be able to do that. But even then, as an early Christian, I, I knew something else was at work there. And, and what's this? Is this? And, and this was the problem with those questions that I received a lot of times, um, is this, is that parents, some parents, have the perception within Christian communities that the church and Christian schools and Christian parachurch organizations are the sole contributors to the spiritual formation of their children. And that is a lie. The parents are, and specifically speaking, the father is in charge of the formation of the child's heart. Um, and I think the Bible makes that, that, that crystal clear. Parents and fathers, looking back at that verse, it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That the words of God are supposed to be dripping off a father and mother's mouth in all activity, all, within reason, all activities of a person's life. That if your child does not know the word of God, then that, that's a problem. And we know that's a problem because we see that in the Old Testament specifically. Uh, with the prophet Eli and the prophet Samuel and others who, as a father and as, 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 a, as a dad, failed to teach his sons the word of God. And I hope that we hear that conviction, that we hear this, this, this um, command well, that we are, to, we are to teach our children the word of God, that we're to talk with them about it. And, and, and what it can look like is, is simply, simply this. Grace and I, you know, we sit down... Um, when we, when we can as a, as a family and as, as often as we are able to when with dinner and we, um, we will go through a chapter of Proverbs and we'll spend time in fellowship with each other uh, talking about, well, I'll read a Proverbs out loud and then we'll just discuss and Ruby Mae, if, if she's able, is at the table and we just spend that time praying and, and discussing what God's doing in our lives. 
See, we don't have to make it an hour-long worship service. The important thing is, is that we're just doing it. That as fathers, that you're just doing it. That you're just leading in this area. That you're raising your kids to godliness. If you don't know what family devotions look like, I'd also encourage you to kind of round up some of, the, some of the fathers in here that have done this, that have made it a goal, an object of family worship in their lives, and to talk to them about how you might be able to institute this devotion in your, in your own family's life. But uh, men, especially, hear my words out. This isn't, this isn't optional. I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't want to beat you over the head with imperatives, but this is, this is pretty much what's expected of a Christian father is that they're teaching their children the word of God and it's unfortunately a shame if it's not taking place. And so now I want to say, through the love of Christ, would you spend time teaching your children uh, the word and, and letting it be something that saturates everything that you do, every activity that you do. Another point of confessing the Lord is this is that we're to confess the Lord, that if we're not sharing the good news, if we're not sharing the gospel, then, then, then that's a problem. That's that whole context of putting it on your, on your doorstep. And I talked about this last week, and I don't want to talk about it a whole lot this week, but what we need to be thinking about as a church community, and I've written some questions, is, is how is Lion and Lamb Church going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation, and then how am I myself understanding the great commission to go out into the world going to f- confess the greatness and goodness of Christ into all the ends of the world or specifically, as I was telling last week, into the communities and families that I'm a part of? That can look like a lot of things. It can look like inviting people over for dinner. It can be uh, for some that are gifted in evangelism, especially sharing the gospel with as many people as possible. I don't know what that looks like for each individual person, but I do know that we are to confess and to make known the glories of God to uh, the people in our lives. Finally, and, and the third point is, uh, that I wanted to draw from this chapter is this, is that we must remember the Lord. It says, and when, you, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers and to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards of olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, um, what Moses is saying is that he's not necessarily concerned with this forgetting of kind of absent-mindedness. This, this sense of forgetting is actually sort of a moral equivalence to, to a moral failure to recognize and to remain faithful to God. Um, God's faithfulness and giving, uh, that we are supposed to uh, be faithful to God and give him only worship. As like I said before, and what this verse is saying is that you're going to be in a land that is completely provided for you. And when you get there, there are going to be idols there. And he, he, he does command them to destroy them and they, we find out that they, that they don't completely, but you're going to be taken care of and your temptation is going to be to rely on me less and it's interesting that with Israel, we see this common in a lot of societies is that usually when they become very fat and happy that they become morally and spiritually laxed. That was a warning for Israel. And if you turn to Revelation 3.14, I think you'll find a warning similar to that to one of the seven churches that are being, that's being spoken of in, in the book of Revelation. And I'll give you a second to turn there. And I'm going to grab a drink of water real quick. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Uh, 
In verse four or 14 in chapter 3, it reads, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And he goes on to offer further condemnation of this church. And uh, there's some context there that we need to look at, that there was a, actually an earthquake in AD 60 in this town. And, and this, this community so prized themselves on their self-reliance and kind of their own ability pro- to provide for themselves that when the Roman imperial fund relief or disaster relief fund came and they offered up these funds to help be re- rebuild the city, they actually denied it. They said, no, thank you because they were so proud of how reliant they were on themselves. And, and Mike has said this before, and other commentators have said this, and, and, and pastors have said that this church eerily reminds them of America. See, we, we, we pride ourselves in a society that, that says, I can do it myself. I'm a self-made man or woman. I'm reliant, and I answer to myself solely. And, you know, there's, there's a good virtue at some extent of being able to be self-reliant and to take care and preparing yourself financially and, and, and with means and whatnot. I don't want you to hear me wrong on that, but what the problem is is this, is when we count our successes solely on our own hands, when we count our wealth solely by our own works, then we f- completely forget God the Father and his good mercies to all people bestowing gifts of prosperity and gifts of success to, um, to, to people. You are wealthy because God has been merciful to you and because he's gracious to you. You're successful because God is gracious to you and merciful to you. And we need to remember that as a church body, as individuals, that God is faithful to us and that he's blessed us with that. And so and in that, we are thankful because if we're not, then we are then we are betraying God in some sense. Um, what does that look like? Uh, we have, uh, our family, we have a kind of an online prayer journal that we use. It's a, it's a word program that we've kind of made tabs for and uh, for, for praying and, and keeping up. And we have a section that's just adoration and thanksgiving. And in that, that section for us, it's just simply writing out something that we're thankful for. You know, yesterday it was just, I'm just really thankful for my, my daughter Ruby May. You know, and it, it can be something so simple that just thanking God for life, thanking God for a job in a, in a, in a horrible co- economy, thanking God for security here in the United States in Topeka, Kansas. I don't know what that looks like, but when we are actively partaking and thanksgiving to God, we are realizing that it's not because of our own merits and our own worth specifically, but because God in his goodness has blessed us with these things. We're learning to stop relying on ourselves and becoming more and more dependent on God's work in our life. And our ability to remember the work of God in our life as well as his faithfulness is key to living a life of devotion towards the Lord. Just thinking and just kind of wrapping things up here, um, I really like this song uh, that Bob Dylan wrote in 1980. Looking for Bill. I don't see him anyhow. Uh, Gotta Serve Somebody. It's just, it's just a great song. And, and I was reading as, in this story, uh, John Lennon actually r- wrote a reply song called Serve Yourself. And, you know, John Lennon in the Beatles, he was just kind of a hostile guy. And, um, 
he, he was very angry towards religion. And you saw in his life somebody that, that had served himself, that really lived that idea of serving himself. And, it, and you just look and, and read biographies, you see such a dark side that he had of a person bent in towards himself. But Bob Dylan wrote a wonderful song, Gotta Serve Somebody, in which various professions, titles, and objects um, are, are kind of laid out and, 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 and um, saying that that's what you serve. And I want to I read some of the, the lines here because it's, it's just a really great song. He says this, You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barbershop. You, you may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread, you might be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's, that's it when we talk about devotion. Devotion and worship are very close. That We don't realize this because, you know, we don't sometimes in- realize like how intricately uh, and wonderfully we are made as, as copies of the very image of God, but we are created to worship. And, and people have often said that no matter what you do in your life, you're worshiping something. You can worship God, you can worship money, you can worship sex, you can worship power, you can worship yourself. But no matter what you're doing, you're worshiping something. God requires his, his, or our devotion to him. And so the question is, who do you serve? Who really are you devoted to? Um, just a few final thoughts is this. Spend some time this week. Don't, don't you hear this message and, and it's, you know, you might think, oh, it's, it's okay or it's great or whatever. But I want you all to challenge, I want to challenge you all to spend some time thinking about what really motivates and drives your heart. Is it really God? Is it really Jesus Christ? Is it yourself? Is it wanting the approval of others? I don't know what that looks like, but spend time thinking about what, and tr- what you are truly devoted to. And for those of you that may be visiting and don't know Christ, you will not be happy. And for those that are serving something other than Christ, you will not be happy until you find rest and satisfaction in Christ Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Uh, you're here today visiting, that's great. And I can tell you, if you leave here today and you don't make a decision for Christ, you won't know what true satisfaction looks like. And if you haven't been serving Christ with all of your heart and with all your mind today, you won't know what satisfaction in life looks like until you completely and woefully devote yourself to him. Let's pray. Lord, I understand that I've I've made a strong comment at the end and that my being the first one to admit that I don't always serve you myself. And Lord, I ask forgiveness, and I ask that we would ask for forgiveness in that, Lord, that we don't always serve you like we're supposed to, that, Lord, we we worry about ourselves and and other priorities, and we unfortunately give the giver of life and all of creation kind of a, a second status, Lord, in our lives. Father, I I pray that you would be working in our hearts, Lord, that we would find joy and satisfaction in the loving relationship that we have with you. Lord, that through that we would confess you 
to our friends and our family and the people in, com- in, in the community of Topeka, Kansas and wherever we be. And Father, ultimately too, that we would remember you. God, that we are heirs of your promises to Abraham, that we are the Gentiles in which your name has been known to all the nations, Lord. And through our faith in Christ, we are actual examples of your covenant faithfulness. So Father, I just pray that you would be reforming our hearts and reforming our minds. Lord, help us to worship you now faithfully in spirit and in truth. In Christ Jesus, our Lord's name, amen.